October 16, 1959. A train from Helsinki, Finland slowed as it approached Leningradsky Vogzal, an English Leningrad station, in Moscow. In Mother Russia, winter comes early. The sky that day was gray, the high 36 degrees, and there was a cold, penetrating drizzle. As the train pulled in, a young American man no doubt surveyed the city before him. It was his first glimpse of Moscow, the capital of the Soviet Union, the beating heart of the communist world that he professed to adore. That he had arrived was a dream fulfilled. His name? Lee Harvey Oswald. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Countdown to Dallas, the podcast series based on my book of the same title. Oswald had turned his world upside down. Just two months earlier, he was a U.S. Marine living in Southern California. He lied to the Marines asking for an early discharge so he could care for his mother. He had no intention of doing that. Instead, he hopped on a freighter in New Orleans, made his way to France, England, and Finland before embarking on the final leg of his remarkable journey. In prior episodes, I discussed some of the baseline characteristics that Oswald carried with him throughout his short life, anger and inability to get along with people, and more. It was on display as his ship steamed across the Atlantic. His cabin mate called Oswald, quote, standoffish and said Oswald seemed bitter. Two other passengers who crossed paths with him said the same. I mention little behavioral deficiencies like these because, as we've seen, they keep popping up in Oswald's life. The anger, the resentment, and a penchant for violence are others. Perhaps in the aggregate, these things aren't so little. Meantime, some conspiracy buffs looking at Oswald's trip found what they considered discrepancies, like how he flew from London to Helsinki on a particular day, for instance. The answer to that one could be easily found in seconds by just studying archival airline schedules. But the broader observation here is perhaps best handled by the man I've mentioned in prior episodes, Vincent Bugliosi, the legendary prosecutor turned author who spent two decades writing the epic 1600-page Reclaiming History, a massive 360-degree study of President Kennedy's assassination. Bugliosi notes that odds and ends that don't seem to fit, in the minds of conspiracy buffs at least, are, upon reasonable examination, easily explained away. Twenty years ago, he wrote this, quote, The Warren Commission critics and conspiracy theorists have succeeded in transforming a case very simple and obvious at its core, Oswald killed Kennedy and acted alone, into its present form of the most complex murder case by far in world history. 
He continues, refusing to accept the plain truth and dedicating their existence for over 40 years to convincing the American public of the truth of their own charges, the critics have journeyed to the outer margins of their imaginations. Along the way, they have split hairs and then proceeded to split the split hairs, drawn far-fetched and wholly unreasonable inferences from known facts and literally invented bogus facts from the grist of rumor and speculation. He adds this, With over 18,000 pages of small print in the 27 Warren Commission volumes alone and many millions of pages of FBI and CIA documents, any researcher worth his salt can find a sentence here or there to support any ludicrous conspiracy theory he might have. And that, of course, is precisely what the conspiracy community has done, unquote. He wrote all that nearly two decades ago, and it remains so today. In any case, let's return to Moscow, where Oswald has just arrived on a five-day tourist visa. He's only 19 years old. In his diary, his vanity was such that he called it a historic diary, he scribbled that he was met by a guide from Intourist, the Soviet travel agency, and driven to the Hotel Berlin, where he was given room 320. Of course, Intourist was no mere travel agency. It was, in fact, an arm of the KGB, the fearsome Soviet spy agency. The next day, that guide, Rima Shirakova, took Oswald on a tour of Moscow, ending with Red Square and the Kremlin. Oswald likely heard these famous chimes of the Spassky Tower in the Kremlin, but history and culture were not on his mind. He told Rima that he wanted to defect to apply for Soviet citizenship. Years later, she told the PBS program Frontline, a brilliant program, that she was shocked. She asked him why. And he said that it was his political views. He said that he was a communist. He doesn't approve of the American way of life. The next day, October 18th, Oswald pressed his case, offering to give the Soviets, again according to Rima, secrets. October 18th also happened to be Oswald's birthday, and Rima gave him a book, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. But three days later, with his tourist visa about to expire, Oswald got a shock. The Soviets said, Niet, no to his request for asylum, and said that he would have to leave the country that night. In his diary, Oswald wrote that his dreams were shattered. A senior KGB official who handled Oswald's case in 1959 was Vladimir Semichasny. In 1993, he told Frontline why they rejected Oswald. When he came to us and began to ask for asylum here so insistently, the first reaction was to refuse and not to give him permission to stay in the Soviet Union, let alone to give him political asylum. As Semichasny notes, the Soviets didn't think too much of Oswald, he was just a minnow, after all, hardly worth their time. Besides, there were bigger things going on in the fall of 1959. An interesting and historic arrival at Andrews Airfield near Washington. 
the huge TU-114 airliner bringing Mr. Khrushchev on his first visit to the United States. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev had just visited the United States, a high-profile two-week trip, and both Washington and Moscow were hopeful for better relations. The Kremlin perhaps decided that it did not want any sort of issue with Washington. In any case, a desperate Oswald decided upon a dramatic gesture he would attempt suicide. Here's another entry from his so-called historic diary. I decide to end it, soak fist in cold water to numb the pain, then slash my left wrist, then plunge wrist into bathtub of hot water. Somewhere, a violin plays as I watch my life swirl away. I think to myself, how easy to die and a sweet death to violin. But if Oswald was really trying to kill himself, he didn't try hard enough. The cuts on his wrist weren't that deep. Dr. Lydia Michalina was on duty at the hospital when Oswald arrived. She spoke through an interpreter to Frontline. It was my impression immediately that this was a sure suicide attempt, since he was refused political asylum, which he had been demanding. And he tried to obtain permission to stay in the Soviet Union by inflicting the wounds. But the show suicide attempt, as Dr. Michelena put it, got what Oswald really wanted, attention. After being patched up, he was given a mental evaluation. Now, you might recall that in episode two of this series, Oswald had been given a three-week mental evaluation in New York in 1953. It was determined that he had a disturbed personality with schizoid features and passive-aggressive tendencies. It was also determined that Oswald was hiding, quote, considerable hostility of various degrees, end quote, and that, quote, his aggressiveness can be triggered and provoked in stress situations, unquote. That was 1953. Now, six years later in Moscow, two doctors, according to a future U.S. defector by the name of Yuri Nisenko, said Oswald was mentally unstable. One said he was capable of, quote, more irrational acts, unquote. While Oswald was in the hospital, he was visited by Rima, his in-tourist guide, on a regular basis. On one such visit, she mentioned that the name Lee was difficult to pronounce in Russian. She suggested that the more Russian-sounding Alec would be better. Oswald liked it. I tell this seemingly meaningless anecdote because it looms large in the final year of Oswald's life. We'll discuss this a few episodes down the road. Anyway, after being released from the hospital, Oswald made another dramatic gesture and showed up at the American embassy. It was October 31st, Halloween, and he told the receptionist, Joan Hallett, that he wanted to renounce his American citizenship. By the way, stay tuned for an incredible item on her at the end of this episode. Hallett took Oswald down the hall to meet a consular official, Richard Snyder. Snyder, talking to PBS's Frontline decades later, recalled the moment with great clarity. They put a piece of paper on my desk. It said, I have come to revoke my American citizenship. I have applied for Soviet citizenship. He also volunteered the information that he'd been, while in the Marines, he'd been a, uh, a radar technician. And uh, that when he became a Soviet citizen, he, in, he intended to offer 
uh, to the Soviet authorities everything that he had learned. Snyder, as did the receptionist Hallett, said Oswald was arrogant, surly, and demanding. He says Oswald told him, quote, don't bother wasting my time asking me questions or trying to talk me out of my position, unquote. But October 31st was a Saturday. Snyder said that paperwork for such a serious thing could not be processed until Monday. Oswald wrote in his diary that this made him angry. And yet, Monday, November 2nd, came and went, and Oswald never showed up. But he got a visitor at his hotel, a woman named Aline Mosby, a reporter for United Press International. It seems that Snyder, the embassy official, tipped her off about a potential defector. Oswald, hungry for attention, granted the interview. Four years later, the day after President Kennedy was killed, Mosby, by then working in Paris, said this. So Mosby, meeting this, in her words, weird and unbalanced young man, was saying pretty much the same thing that people who had known Oswald much better had been saying his entire life. Teachers, neighbors, and so forth, not to mention not one, but two mental evaluations. We'll be right back. Welcome back. November, dark and frigid in Moscow, passed uneventfully, with Oswald spending long hours in his hotel room studying Russian. One reason for rarely venturing outside, he lacked winter clothing. Rima, the in-tourist guide who kept tabs on him, got him an Ushanka, a warm hat. Lee was overjoyed and kissed her. Meanwhile, another American journalist, Priscilla Johnson, also paid Oswald a visit. Stay tuned for an incredible item on her, also at the end of this podcast. It was November the 16th, the snow was falling that day, the temperature in the teens. In the warmth of Oswald's room, they drank tea and talked for six hours. Decades later, Johnson, by then Priscilla Johnson McMillan, recalled the encounter. This is from a 1977 interview with Chicago TV journalist Ron Hunter. What kind of a man was he? Forlorn, lonely, pathetic, lost, seeming to need help. And here she is years after that with Eric Shawn of Fox News. He wanted to talk about Marxian economics, but I didn't want to talk. I wanted to talk about him. What did he want? He wanted never to go back to the United States. What did he say motivated him? Uh, Marx, a, a belief in Marxist ideology, and um, he hated capitalism. 
Then there is this observation to the PBS program American Experience in 2008. Oswald had already done some difficult things. He had gotten into the Marine Corps and gotten out of the Marine Corps falsely on a hardship discharge. He'd gone by himself to the Soviet Union. He had gotten the Russians to accept him as a defector. And then when he decided that he wanted to go back to the United States, he managed to take a wife with him. He'd done very difficult things in his life, and he'd done them alone. At one point in their Marathon 1959 interview on that snowy Moscow evening, Johnson asked Oswald a simple question. Why? Why are you doing this? His response, quote, I would like, he said, to give the people of the United States something to think about. Ah, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit here. We'll return to Priscilla Johnson McMillan a bit later in this series. In those long, dark days, while Oswald waited to learn his fate, he wrote a letter to his older brother Robert back in Texas. Lee's anger and hatred for the United States leapt off the page. Here's a portion. I have been told that I will not have to leave the Soviet Union if I did not care to. This, then, is my decision. I will not leave this country, the Soviet Union, under any conditions. I will never return to the United States, which is a country I hate. Someday, perhaps soon, and then again perhaps in a few years, I will become a citizen of the Soviet Union, but it is a very legal process. We get it. Lee hated America. He hated capitalism. At the end of the letter, the capitalist-hating Lee asked Robert to send money, which he said he could use. But Lee wasn't finished. On November 26th, which was Thanksgiving Day in the United States, he wrote Robert another angry letter. This time, though, he threatened violence. It was a long letter, 1,298 words. Here's an excerpt in which he had a numbered list of the key points he wanted to make. One, in the event of war, I would kill any American who puts a uniform on in defense of the American government. Any American. Two, I have no attachment of any kind in the U.S. Three, I want to, and I shall, live a normal, happy, and peaceful life here in the Soviet Union for the rest of my life. There's a lot more, but you get the idea. The irony seemed lost on this angry young man that his scribbling about how America was an awful country, oppressive and exploitative, was written in the dreary capital of a brutal police state, land of the midnight knock on the door, a place where ordinary citizens often disappeared without a trace, banished to a vast network of Siberian prison camps, the country that occupied half of Europe by force. Or, if Oswald ever walked out the front door of his hotel, he was now at the Metropole in central Moscow, and turned right and strolled maybe three or four minutes along the Teatralnaya Proyezd, he would have encountered a butterscotch-colored building, seven stories tall, looming over a place called Lubyanka Ploshed, Lubyanka Square. This was the headquarters of the feared KGB. In the basement were blood-stained execution chambers where enemies of the state were tortured and shot. The mere symbolism of the building was so terrifying that some Muscovites went out of their way to avoid walking near it. 
Lee Harvey Oswald thought he was in some sort of paradise, but one wonders if he had even the slightest clue as to what he was getting into. case, November marched on. The very day after Oswald's letter threatening to kill Americans, Kremlin officials determined that he could stay. Why? Yuri Nisenko, the future defector, said that authorities feared that forcing Oswald out of the country might result in another suicide attempt, perhaps a successful one, which might cause problems with Washington. An American dead on Soviet soil, given the improving ties between the two powers, that was not a headline that Moscow wanted. So let Oswald stay. That was the general feeling. Oswald would not be informed of this for several weeks, but the decision had been made. Now, one long-standing question that has always hovered over the Oswald saga, was he some sort of intelligence operative? We'll get to the CIA angle later in this podcast. But for now, with Oswald in Moscow, intent upon staying forever, that's what he said, did the KGB make an effort to recruit him? Again, here's Vladimir Semichasny, who handled Oswald's case in 1959, speaking to Frontline. Counterintelligence and intelligence, they both looked him over to see what he was capable of. But unfortunately, neither could find any ability at all. What information could 20-year-old Oswald offer anyway? The location of bases? The Soviets already knew that. Radio frequencies, call signs, authentication codes for squadrons, these were always changed on a regular basis anyway. Any info Oswald had was nearly two years old. There were details about the U-2 spy plane that the Soviets wanted, namely the aircraft's high-tech reconnaissance and electronic equipment. But going back to Oswald's brief posting at Atsugi, the base in Japan, Quote, there is no evidence, notes Vincent Bugliosi in Reclaiming History, that Oswald, quote, displayed more than a normal curiosity about the plane, unquote. Just because Oswald had been stationed at the base where the U-2 flew does not mean he had access to it. U-2 operations were essentially run from a base within a base. Planes were kept in a hangar, watched around the clock by heavily armed guards. More from the KGB's Semichastny. There were conversations, but this was such outdated information. The kind we say the sparrows have already chirped to the entire world, and now Oswald tells us about it. Not the kind of information that would interest such a high-level organization like ours. In 1961, by the way, Semichesny would become director of the KGB itself, the most powerful intelligence official in the Soviet Union. But Oswald knows nothing of this, and by New Year's Eve, as Russians celebrated with music and drink, Oswald rang in the new year, a new decade, alone, except to exchange greetings with the Djernaya, the hotel-slash-KGB employee stationed on every floor of the hotel. It must have been a lonely existence. Four days later, on January the 4th, Oswald was told by Rema, his interest minder, that he could stay but not in Moscow. Instead, Oswald was being shipped off to Minsk in Beulah, Russia, some 420 miles to the southwest. 
Three days later, he departed, crying, apparently tears of happiness, but not before one final slap at his own family back in America. In his diary, he writes, I wrote my mother and brother letters in which I said, I do not wish to ever contact you again. I am beginning a new life and don't want any part of the old. As the train took him to that new life, Oswald was probably oblivious to news in the United States, the country he rejected, the country he threatened violence against, that the 1960 presidential campaign was heating up. I am today announcing my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. John F. Kennedy, the junior senator from Massachusetts, was now in the race. By the way, I told you to stick around for stories about two American women that Oswald encountered in Moscow. When he went to the American embassy on Halloween 1959, Joan Hallett was the receptionist who saw him. Her husband, Oliver, was a naval officer stationed at the embassy. Fast forward four years, Commander Hallett was posted to the White House Situation Room at the time of the Kennedy assassination. The other women's story is even more interesting. I mentioned that Priscilla Johnson, soon to be Priscilla Johnson McMillan, interviewed Oswald in Moscow, but years earlier she had worked on the Senate staff for John F. Kennedy. Thus, she was the only person to have ever known both Kennedy and Oswald. Just amazing, isn't it? It really is a small world. She would go on to spend months with Marina Oswald for her incredible book, Marina and Lee. I highly recommend it. Anyway, if you like this podcast, check out my book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Sound from two highly recommended PBS programs, American Experience and Frontline, its 1993 episode titled, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald? is must viewing. Sound also from the Ron Hunter Show on WMAQ-TV, Fox News, Universal International News, and United Press International, and British Movie Tone News. Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>